Church, we uh, want to welcome you to another edition of the Furthermore Podcast, where we kind of dive further and more into the things we're talking about as uh, as a church, and dive further into theological topics. Um, this week, we are joined by Professor Chad Ragsdale. He's a professor at Ozark Christian College. He teaches uh, New Testament apologetics. Uh, right now, he's on sabbatical and is about to come off. Um, so, um, we are so grateful for him to join us. Thanks for joining us, Chad. Glad to be here. Um, today we are going to cover kind of Paul's uh, second missionary journey, and um, it's kind of um, kind of in Acts 16 until um, early Acts 18. 18, yeah. Um, and um, Paul, in several different um, areas, covers several different types of ministry and types of convincing people of the gospel. And so we bring Chad in today to help us kind of talk about that and talk about. Um, uh, ministry contextualization and apologetics. So we're excited to kick off the conversation. So as we kind of read through uh, Paul's second missionary journey, um, what methods do uh, each of you, and, and I guess I see in, um, in the Paul employing as he's in different areas, and, and why do you think he uses them in the areas that he does, in, in different cities and stuff like that? Chad, do you want to kick us off on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Paul gives us an insight into his whole missionary strategy in uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, um, you probably know the reference, many of the people listening probably know the reference, but in 1 first, in first Corinthians 9, Paul basically says, I'm going to do whatever it takes um, in order to reach as many as I can for the gospel. Um, so if that means to the Jew, I'm going to become like a Jew, to the Gentile, I'm going to become like a Gentile. Um, so what Paul is advocating there is sort of a, a contextualized approach to ministry. I think I think Paul recognized that in order to in order to effectively share the gospel with people, you have to meet people where they're at, mm. right? So you can't you can't take certain things for granted. So in Acts chapter 13, Paul is speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience in uh, in the city in Antioch. And so what does he do? He re- he draws a great deal on Jewish history going back to the Hebrew scriptures. That's the way that he makes his appeal. He doesn't do that, though, when he's in Lystra. He does. He certainly doesn't do that when he's in Athens. Instead, he finds a different, a different place to meet his audience. And so he makes appeals based on their own culture. He makes appeals based on uh, what we sometimes call general revelation, looking at the world around us and, and how you see evidence of God everywhere that you look. Um, and I think that's, that's a lesson that we need to hear from Paul today. Um, sometimes, you know, when we're, um, when we're sharing the gospel with people in our culture today, we, we mistakenly assume that they possess the biblical, the same mm-hmm. biblical foundation that we do. Right. Yep. And so we make appeals to them as if they are a quote insider. They know our language, they know our references, but that's, I don't know that that's ever been the case, but it's certainly not the case today in sort of a, um, I wouldn't call us a post-Christian culture, but we're certainly a biblically illiterate culture. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, just contextualized, contextualized ministry. I think is is Paul's approach. Yeah. 
One of the things that uh, <clears throat> I find fascinating about this, of course, you uh, you know referenced First uh, Corinthians nine. You know, I've, I've become all things to all people. Um, one of the things I find fascinating as they uh, begin on their uh, you know the second missionary journey, and you see Paul, and he now goes out with uh, Silas as opposed to Barnabas, and yet they uh, they take Timothy with him. Um, one of the things that I find really, really interesting is that um, in the uh, beginning of chapter 16, as uh, they're getting ready to take Timothy, um, who is kind of has a unique circumstance. Timothy has a, um, a Jewish mother and a Greek father, or, or vice versa. I, I think it's a Jewish mother and a Greek father. Um, but as they're going to be going to these different places, kind of the, the standard format that Paul usually does is he goes to these cities, um, is he usually finds, a, you know, a synagogue first or a place of prayer or, or, or something like that, um, preaches to the Jews, um, and then some of them accept, then he rejects, and then he goes on to the Gentiles, and they accept the gospel, and, and, and it kind of continues. We sort of see this general pattern um, played out in each city. Um, well, you've got Timothy, uh, who is, uh, you know, kind of half Jewish and, and half Greek, but as they're going to these different places, knowing that they're going to the, uh, uh, you know, first to the synagogues or first to the Jews and communicating there, um, it does something really, really interesting, particularly in light of what just happened in Acts chapter 15. So he takes Timothy and says specifically because of the Jews, he circumcises Timothy. Yeah. Um, which is really interesting because we just got done with Acts chapter 15 where there's this big yeah. debate on, uh, hey, what does it mean to, to be a Christian? Um, or, or how do you, uh, not just a Christian journal, but how, do you, uh, uh, how are you included in the family of God? Um, how are you saved? And most specifically, is circumcision required for salvation? Um, you know, big debate, obviously, because the, the Jewish culture for, you know, centuries and centuries prior to be a, you know, to fully be accepted as a Jew, which they understood was, you know, to be God's people, you had to be circumcised. That was the sign of the covenant. And so now as Gentiles are beginning to accept the gospel, um, you know, there's this big debate on, well, do they need to be circumcised? And they come to this big conclusion where they say, nope, it's by, it's by grace. Um, it's, you know, through faith in Christ, and we don't need to put these external burdens on these people. So, um, hey, this is, this is great news. Uh, Paul, go out and share this uh, letter. Go out and share this good news with all the churches out there. This is a decision we've come to. And as they get ready to go out and share with everybody that, hey, you don't have to be circumcised, what does he do? Uh, he circumcises Timothy, which is, you know, really kind of ironic. Um, and so, it, you know, obviously we understand circumcision isn't required for the gospel, and yet he does it for Timothy anyway. Why is that? Um, and, you know, to your point, uh, we're, we're contextualizing the gospel or, uh, you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, I'll do whatever I have to do um, in order to reach people for the gospel. It wasn't because circumcision was required for Timothy's salvation or things like that. Mm -hmm. We just got done talking which, about that. Which is why Titus doesn't get circumcised. Right, right, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so instead, yeah. it's, uh, no, we're, we're doing this in order to present the gospel to people. So they're, they're meeting the people, as I think as you referred to, Chad, they're meeting the people kind of where they're at and in their mindset in order to bring the gospel that, to them. That's a great example that you give. Um, it, <laughs> what's always so striking to me about that example is the the painful lengths that Timothy was willing to go to, right? right. Um, just for the privilege of sharing the gospel. Hmm. And I think the lesson for us today as the church or the question that we have to ask ourselves is... Um, to what extent are we willing to make those sacrifices in order to um, reach the lost with the gospel? Mm. I think the, the church historically, especially in, in North America, we've had a very attractional model. Mm. 
So come and see or come and come and experience worship, experience community, experience Christ. And I don't think that's wrong. I don't think that's inappropriate to have an attractional model. But that can't that's not sufficient either. Right. And and that's that's made evident by examples like Timothy and and by Paul, who they didn't just have an attractional model, they actually had a sacrificial model, actually sacrificing their own freedom, sacrificing their own comfort. And, and going to to meet people where they're at. I, I find that pretty inspiring. Yeah, and that's actually the, you know, that's the whole context of 1 Corinthians 9, um, where we finally get mm-hmm. to that crescendo there, is Paul saying, hey, I've got these rights as an apostle, and I've got these, and, and, and I could, you know, uh, I could claim all of these things as my rights as an apostle, and yet right. um, I'm forfeiting all of those things. I'm giving all of those up for the sake of bringing the gospel to other people. So, yeah, I think that's I think that's huge. Yeah, last night I was kind of um, walking through kind of the second missionary journey, um, and I noticed um, basically in every city that Paul goes to, like you mentioned, he goes to the synagogue, right? So he goes uh, to in Thessalonica, in Berea, and somewhat in Corinth, he goes to the synagogue and he, and he has some success. Right, especially in Berea, where they you know search the scriptures to see what he if what he says is true, um, but then like you know you have Athens where he doesn't have success in the synagogue, um, and he moves to the uh, lecture hall of uh, Tyrannus. Right? Nope, nope that's Ephesus. Yeah. E- Ephesus. I apologize. Um, but in, in in Athens and Ephesus, he doesn't really have success in the synagogues, and so he moves to the Gentiles. And and of course, um, th- this may be some of what he's getting at in Romans uh, Romans one sixteen, where he says, you know, he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And while Paul considered himself a you know a missionary to the Gentiles, he you know consistently went to the Jew first. Um, and I think there's a variety of reasons for this, and I think we'll answer it as we get to our next kind of topic, next question that we cover. Um, but I think it's important to to understand that when Paul was in the synagogue, his ministry and his presentation of the gospel in the synagogue was far different than his ministry and his presentation yeah. outside of it. Um, yeah. And uh, and and so, um, ministry contextualization is important because um, while the come and see model works. Like you talked about Acts, Acts two and Pentecost, um, it, it was come and see. Um, mm-hmm. That is not the bulk of what's happening in Acts, mm-hmm. and uh, and so there is a a go and tell piece yeah. to what Paul's doing. Yeah, I, I think I think it needs to be pointed out too. Um, I know we're going to get to Athens here in a second, but um, so Paul did Paul did have this model of becoming all things to all people. But that could be misunderstood and misapplied as well. Yeah. Because there were always certain things about Paul's message that were immovable, unchangeable, even though he knew ahead of time the audience isn't going to go for this. They're not going to like this. They're not going to accept this. Paul never changed or adjusted the core components of the gospel just to tickle people's ears. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, so like Athens is a great example of this. He knew that many of the Greeks were not going to be predisposed to believe in the resurrection. He knew that. The Greeks, they found the notion of the resurrection to be deplorable. Yeah. But Paul Paul understood, hey, this is true, regardless of how they respond to the message, so I am duty-bound to to speak the truth, even if my audience doesn't necessarily accept it or like it. So so there is this there is this uh, give and take, I guess, in Paul's approach. He is going to be contextual. He is going to be all things to all people, but not at the expense of the core components of the gospel. 
Right. And I think that's a good warning. I, I think um, there there is a, a good core of Christians in the evangelical church today who recognizes kind of the um, the the and I say seeker sensitive, and I mean truly seeker sensitive, like mm-hmm. um, uh, compromising on truth for the sake of of getting people in, um, whether it's your televangelists, whether it's, you know, everybody in that category. Um, but I think that there's also this dangerous thing that I see in evangelicalism where it's like, let's like, let's slowly win them with truth. Let's slowly win them with, with just like a nugget here. Like, Hey, Jesus loves you. Um, and and then you kind of sit on Jesus loves you for even maybe years before you challenge people to say, yeah, Jesus loves you, but he wants you to repent and he wants you, and he wants you to give up, um, you know, your old life. And Paul, um, I mean, every time he goes and preaches in a public setting, it is repent mm-hmm. and believe for the kingdom of heaven has come. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's important. So, um, so looking at kind of Paul's methods, um, and, and, and it might help us to pause and describe them, and, I'll, and, and Chad, I'll, I'll kick that to you in just a second. Mm-hmm. Um, but which one of Paul's methods do you think would be most effective today, at least to sp- and let, let's narrow in, in in our context in the U.S.? Yeah. Um. Well, I, I think I think Paul has several methods. We've already highlighted a couple of them. I, I think, you know, Paul is definitely a person who is well versed in his Hebrew scriptures. Mm. And so when he when he's talking to people who respect the authority of the Hebrew scriptures, that's how he's going to make his appeal. Um, you know, that's an appeal based on divine revelation. Um, when he talks to a group of people like in Lystra, who apparently are not very well educated, at least, you know, Lystra was kind of off the beaten path. That's what we know. Um, they certainly weren't a Jewish audience. So what does Paul do? Paul appeals to, um, you know, look at the world around you. Look at how God, the God of the heavens provides rain for our crops. And, and um, so he, he appeals to what, you know, many people will call general, general revelation. There's a little bit of that in Athens as well, but Paul tweaks his approach in Athens. Um, he, he also appeals to, um, he appeals to the ignorance of the Athenians. Mm-hmm. He recognizes you are a people, you're a very religious people. Um, you have a lot of gods, you worship a lot of things. But using their own culture, Paul was very culturally astute. Paul was able to look at the culture, read the culture, and use that culture as a as a gateway for introducing the gospel. And so he looks around Athens and he notices you've got all these idols, you've got a, you worship all these things, you're a very religious people, but you're worshiping in ignorance. There, in other words, there's a blind spot there. There's an emptiness there, and I want to fill that emptiness with the truth of the gospel. Yeah. Frankly, I think that that's a that can be a very effective pro- approach in our culture today. Um, because I would argue that despite our secularism, we are still a very, very religious people. Hmm. But there is a there's an emptiness in in our sort of modern secular religion. There's something about it that doesn't completely satisfy. It doesn't completely give us hope. It doesn't completely give us meaning that we crave in our lives. And so I think it's a very effective. I'm not going to quote scripture at people in the hopes of trying to convert them. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to deny the Holy Spirit's power to do that if the Holy Spirit chooses to do that. I'm just not convinced that on the whole, that's an effective strategy for reaching a people that don't have much respect for the authority of mm-hmm. Right. Instead, I want to take a look at my culture. I want to take a, 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 a critical eye to the world around me, the culture around me, 
And I want to use that to sort of build bridges. That's what we're trying to do. I want to build a bridge between the culture that I observe and the truth of the gospel that offers a satisfactory answer to the questions that we're asking. Yeah, that's good. I think, um, you know, we've got, I don't know if this would be a new word for it or not, and, and yet the, the method is not by any means new at all. We see this all over the place with Paul, but, you know, we talk about what uh, um, we, we would refer to as like presuppositional apologetics, where we're... Um, you know, we're not basing this off of, you know, authoritarian claims of truth. Okay, the, the Bible says this, you know, thus saith the Lord, so it's true, and everybody just, you know, get on board or, or whatever. You know, whether or, whether or not there was a time in our culture where uh, that that was truly, uh, you know, worked or, or whatever we, is a, a little bit up for debate. Um, and yet I think the, the bigger thing there is what we see is Paul, and this is the whole contextualizing the gospel thing, um, but, is that, but is that as he goes to different place, he appeals to them based on where they are at, uh, you know, uh, whether that be a you know, a religious, uh, very religious people, um, or uh, Greek people, or, you know, agri- you know, agrarian society, or things like that, um, but he is appealing to them based on where they're at, not based on where Paul is at, and in fact, uh, you know, this is c- kind of past the second missionary journey, but we'll see Paul use some different methods as well, um, you know, later when he goes on trial, um, you know, in, uh, and I think this is probably even uh, important for us today, um, and maybe effective uh, in our current kind of cultural climate is, you know, we see in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26, um, Paul kind of shares his own story and his own experience of how Jesus uh, met him on the road and how he was changed. He kind of gives, here's who I was, here's my backstory, um, and yet Jesus met me and here's, uh, uh, here's how that changed my life. Um, and in a way, I think that has a, in our current cultural climate, I think that has a, uh, uh, a profound impact on people as well. And so, um, uh, because right now in our day, uh, I think people are looking less for um, authority or, um, you know, we, we kind of divide or, or um, uh, get kind of worked up when we talk about things like absolute truth or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I think uh, you know, culturally, when we're trying to reach people who aren't, um, you know, uh, aren't already in the family of God, aren't, aren't already Christians, um, there, uh, a lot of people are looking less for authoritarian claims and more for, you know, authenticity. And so, um, you know, we see Paul doing that as well as, hey, here's my life, here's who I was, and you knew that, um, you've seen me in my old ways, but now God has changed me. And so, um, and so I think that uh, has a lot of, uh, I think that's powerful in our current cultural um, world. What's weird is they're, they're, I think you're right. Uh, people are not inclined to crave authority in our culture. Right. <laughs> um, I think they are inclined, though, to seek stability. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, those two things often go hand in hand. But uh, what I want to communicate to people, especially skeptics and wanderers, which they're not, those aren't always exactly the same person, um, I want to communicate to them the stability of the hope that's found in the gospel. Um, that that this is something that can give their that can that can make their life meaningful. That can give them true hope, true substance, true true purpose. Um, and you know, does Jesus make demands on us? Does His Lordship make demands on us for submission? Absolutely. Um, but what I want to first communicate, I guess, is without minimizing the Lordship of Jesus, I also want to communicate 
sort of the, the Matthew 7 idea about building your house on a solid rock. This is something that can give you stability. And this is, this is something that you really need right now, whether you realize it or not. Yeah, I think it's worth noting. Um, I, the only thing I would add, um, and we're recording this exactly one week after the election. Um, it'll probably come out at the end of the month. Um, and if the election revealed anything, it's that we're in a deeply divided country. Um, yeah. But I think the divisions go beyond just political. I think the divisions go generational. I think the divisions go cultural. Um, and I think that there is a distinct difference between the rural American and the and the like the the urban or or coastal American. I grew up in uh, in Minnesota, and um, Minnesota is leans pretty pretty liberal. Um, but but there's this like this so okay my hometown had eight Lutheran churches for eighteen thousand people, like there there are people who are generally generationally Christian who would say and I think believe that the Bible is authorita- author- authoritarian authoritarian uh, uh, authoritative authoritative golly and authoritarian maybe I don't know, um, but uh, th- they would believe that it's authoritative and and so the conversations that I would have with these people back home and, and people, you know, in the Bible, but like we, like we live in, um, uh, is it starts with, okay, you believe the scriptures are true. Here's what the scriptures reveal. Right. But there were also people back home. I had a conversation with my homeroom teacher one time where I was talking about, uh, scripture and whether it's true and stuff like that. And I said, you know, I believe in objective truth. And she said, Oh, you're one of those people. You know that there that there is a, a thing for a teacher to say. Yeah, but, well, <laughs> right. she she was actually uh, she uh, took half the year off because she was uh, in the state legislature, um, which was interesting. Um, oh, that's yeah, and she uh, but but she genuinely believed and and philosophically believed that there is no objective truth that all truth is subjective and all truth belongs to the person, and that 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 is a cultural and philosophical divide between a lot of people that grew up in my hometown. Mm-hmm. And yet, yeah. you know, th- there, there was these two different types of people. And so the conversation that I would have with her or the conversation that I would have with, you know, people, that, friends that I was close to who did not believe that the scriptures are authoritative was to start there. You know, where, where, where do you get your uh, truth? And is, is your truth solid? Like, you know, Chad mentioned the, uh, what, what do you build your house on? Um, and that can be helpful. Um, but like, where do you get your truth and how do you know that what you believe is really real? And, uh, yeah, and, and, uh, and that's why, um, you didn't take apologetics with me, did you? I took it online. Um, it online. so, so, so you, explains a lot. it's easy to forget uh, that I was, you know, in one of your online classes. I so I, I know we're, I know we're going to talk apologetics here in just a second, but what you're describing is the reason why I begin my semester in apologetics. I don't, I don't talk about Jesus I don't talk about, does God exist? You know, we get to those questions later on, but I actually begin my semester talking about truth yep. <laughs> and, and why, um, why it's reasonable to believe that truth exists um, and why it's unreasonable to hold the position that there is no such thing as objective truth. Um, so yeah, that is the first conversation that sometimes we have to have. You know, you mentioned politics and Far, far be it for me to soil this wonderful podcast with any sort of political discussion. But I, I will simply say this, though. The amount of passion, like almost unhinged religious passion, mm-hmm. that people on both sides of the partisan divide have brought to this election, um, I, I think that that would be one of the things that if Paul walked into our culture today, he would look around at the political, political landscape and he would say, I can see that you have many gods. Mm. <laughs> um, 
now we we think we're sophisticated, right? We you know we think that we're sophisticated. We don't have temples and idols and all these gods that we're worshiping. But I think Paul would be astute enough to recognize the truth of the matter, which is that we have turned our politics into a god, which is exactly why we fight about politics so much because we are insecure in this in this god that we've chosen to dedicate our lives to, and. You know, this this isn't a message that's going to make you a ton of friends. But yeah. again, Paul wasn't necessarily concerned about that in Acts 17. It is nevertheless true, though, that that the God of politics or the God of sports or the God of whatever is not going to bring you any stability or true hope for your life because it's a false God. It's a false idol. Um, but again, that's what I'm talking about there as far as a gateway. Here's, here's the open door for us to walk through. This is something that we see in our culture. How can we use that to introduce people to the truth? Yeah. So you, uh, Chad, you've already kind of cracked the, uh, the nut open. So let's dive into, um, in Acts 17, it's, it is really one of the uh, classic apologetic texts. Um, there, yeah. the, you know, there are several, and Paul continues to use apologetics uh, throughout, you know, um, really all of his missionary journeys, but this this is one worth zeroing in on. Paul uses in Acts 17 in Athens a form of apologetics. So let's let's talk about, um, for the people who may, may be listening or watching who don't know what it is, what is apologetics and why is it important? How does Paul use it in, in Acts 17? Yeah. Apologetics, just to make it very, very simple, apologetics is a reasoned defense for what you believe. <laughs> um, so it's it may start with our personal testimony, and that's you know that's the first apologetic that a lot of people learn is is learning how to share their own story, mm-hmm. their own personal testimony, and I think that's wonderful. I think that's necessary for anybody listening in the audience. You know, learn your story, know your story well, mm-hmm. but that's not really where apologetics stops. Apologetics goes beyond the personal, and it's 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 more about offering a reasoned defense. This is why not only I believe in the gospel, but this is why you should believe in the gospel too, because it's true to all of life. It's true to all of us. And so um, you're right. Apologetics is practiced in many different ways, both in scripture and even still today. Um, But the way that that Paul is um, approaching apologetics in uh, in Athens is, um, again, he's he's meeting their culture where they're at and I've used this I've used this metaphor before in this podcast, but apologetics is really an attempt to build a bridge. Mm. Um, I, I try to remind all my students as much as I can, the goal of apologetics is not for you to make converts. I think sometimes we make that mistake in evangelism and apologetics. We, we falsely imagine that it falls on our shoulders um, to make converts. That's not really what we're doing, though. Um, we, we trust God's work. We trust God's timing. Um, and we recognize that we don't earn our salvation and neither do we earn other people's salvation mm-hmm. either. Um, my job as an apologist is to build a bridge between the gospel and this person's life. Um, I'll give you another metaphor. Sorry for mixing my metaphors, but that's what apologists do. Um, <laughs> You know, if you're walking across a field, an open field, um, and you're trying to lead somebody else across that open field, it's it's in your best interest and their best interest to remove as many obstacles and boulders and holes as possible. Um, you may know the field well. 
you may be able to avoid the holes, avoid the obstacles, avoid the rocks, but they're new to it. And so if they're going to make it safely across, you've got to, you've got to warn them where the potholes are. And you also got to make it, make the path somewhat, somewhat uh, narrow, uh, flat for them. And that's really what apologetics is. Apologetics is going across that field and picking up rocks, picking up boulders, or removing those obstacles to faith that people yeah. might have. Um, and so, you know, sometimes the obstacle to faith, honestly, is suffering. That's, that's a big obstacle to faith. I can't believe in God because of how I've suffered or because of how people in my life have suffered. So that what the apologist does is the apologist comes in and says, okay, um, I'm not going to try to claim that I can answer this question definitively or perfectly, but I am going to try to remove that boulder. I'm going to try to remove that rock in your path so that it becomes easier for you or more reasonable for you to believe. Some people, the obstacle in their path is um, honestly, and this is hard to say, it's hard to admit, but sometimes the obstacle in their path is the way that they've been treated by Christians or mm -hmm. by the church in the past. Absolutely. And so sometimes the apologist has to come alongside of people and say, hey, can you tell me your story? I want to be sensitive to what you've dealt with. And, you know, if we need to repent, we're going to repent. If we need to apologize, we need to apologize. But I want to do something to try to heal that wound that is keeping you from embracing Jesus as the Lord. And so that's all apologetics is trying to do. Apologetics is offering a reasoned defense, trying to remove those obstacles to faith. Yeah. No, I think that's um, I think that's great. Actually, you you basically uh, just went through everything that I had down in my notes here. So um, so thanks yeah. for that. But uh, yeah, I think that uh, that's that's kind of how I uh, thought of it. Uh, I mean, you use the illustration of building bridges, and I think that's uh, phenomenal. Um, also, but yeah, uh, what we're trying to do, um, just like you said is that we're trying to remove obstacles from people's faith, whether that be, um, you know, people, you know, as Paul's going through and he's, uh, you know, preaching to Jews, so whether that be, well, look, the Old Testament, you know, here, the Old Testament, this is, uh, where ha this is uh, you know, what we believe in, and, and the God of this Old Testament is saying, well, hey, you know, uh, the God of the Old Testament is uh, fulfilling all of this through Christ and, and showing them through the scriptures, or whether that be the, you know, philosophies of the Greeks or, or whatever. Um, but uh, one of the things I think is important for us to remember, too, and, and you uh, pointed this out, is um, that what we're trying to do, it, you know, it doesn't completely fall on our shoulders. It's not our responsibility. Um, we are simply called to testify to the truth, um, and, and that's, uh, that's what God tells us to do. Um, you know, and the Holy Spirit does the work in people's lives, and that's really the one who does the conversion. Um, it's just up to us to be obedient to God and to share and to take away those obstacles. Um, sometimes I think we almost view apologetics as if it is a, uh, you know, as if it's a battle. It's this war, and we've got to, you know, prove the other person wrong, or we've got to, you know, mentally, you know, pound them into submission so that they will see that this is the ultimate truth. Um, or sometimes even, I think, even for our own uh, sometimes we approach apologetics even from our own uh, perspective kind of selfishly and am I really just trying to reason myself into this like no uh, I'm, I'm justifying what I believe and so I've got to win this argument otherwise you know my foundation is shaken or whatever but that's not really what it's all about like I said it's about building bridges to other people and removing these obstacles so that whatever is in the way of people receiving the gospel um, 
we can take those things away. So it's not, it's not, uh, you know, there's not culture between them and Jesus. There's not some, you know, uh, some mental argument or some, you know, some history or some hurt or some wounds that are in the way between them and Jesus. We're trying to remove all those things so that people can come face to face with Jesus and then they have to make that decision. Um, And so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry for interrupting you. No, you're good. Two things kind of came to mind as you were talking. The first thing that came to mind is something that Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Um, as, as Paul is trying to officiate some conflict that's happening in the church, some people are following this guy, other mm. people are following that guy. There's this divided uh, allegiance, this divided loyalty. And Paul reminds the people in Corinth, he says, listen, I planted the seed. This other guy named Apollos, he watered it, but God made it grow. Mm-hmm. And whether we're talking apologetics or preaching or evangelism or whatever the case may be, I think it's always good to keep that in mind. I may be planting a seed. I may be watering a seed. But ultimately, this is God who's going to do a work. The other thing that just something that you said really sparked this in me. One of the one of the most seductive things about apologetics, and I'm here to tell you, I fall into this trap literally all the time. So I'm not I'm not casting any stones. This is something that I struggle with. Ben could tell you this, um, but apologetics is extremely seductive for argumentative people. Yeah. Um, and I am one of those argumentative people. <laughs> I just am. It's it's in my blood. I love a good spirited debate. Okay. I just love it. Um, that sounds better than argument. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> but but the temptation is, and part of it comes from the maybe the defensiveness in our own in our own heart, like we. We, we want so desperately to prove to the world that we're right mm-hmm. and we're right on every little thing. But notice the way I phrase that sentence. We want to prove that who's right, that we're right. You know, and so apologetics becomes really seductive to a certain type of personality where I want to go into the world and I just want to prove to the world that they're wrong and I'm right. And, uh, and I, I chastise myself for this. I chastise my students for this because that that really should never be the aim of any sort of apologetic discussion. And I think you know Paul had that had that genetic predisposition too. I think to 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 argue to argue to debate to whatever. But it's remarkable to me when you look at the Book of Acts how consistently he reigns that in. And he reigns that in for the purpose of again First Corinthians nine, so that I might reach some. Um, I'm, I'm not here to win a debate. I'm here to introduce people to Jesus. And that may be, or that may mean at the end of the day, people with their little scorecards, keeping track at home, maybe Chad lost that debate. Okay. Hmm. Maybe that's okay. Yeah. But, but maybe that's what needs to happen in order for me to actually present the gospel in a way that some people in the audience are going to respond favorably to. Yeah. Apologetics, really, um, if you think about it, uh, you know, we can we can distort it and think, oh, this is about me versus you. Here's the argument, and I've got to win. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, really, um, what we're trying to accomplish in apologetics, in our in our witness, um, is really a profoundly um, humble and others-oriented yeah. thing. You know, this isn't yeah. for my sake. This has nothing to do with me. I'm trying to build a bridge 
Um, and not even just between me and you, but ultimately I'm trying to build a bridge between you and Christ. Um, I'm trying to remove the op- obstacles between you and Christ for your benefit. It really has absolutely nothing to do with us at the heart of it. And so, um, uh, but it's very, like you said, it, it can be very uh, seductive or very tempting for us to, uh, you know, want to want to go down that road because then, oh, look at me, look how smart I am, or, or you know, I'm on the winning side of, you know, the, yeah. the argument, whatever. But uh, yeah, at, at its heart, though, it's really, um, it's really, the most selfless and humble thing that we can do. There's, um, there's this, uh, there's this trend, especially online, um, this trend of wanting to own your enemies, own your opponents. Mm-hmm. So owning the libs or owning the conservatives <laughs> or, or whatever. And in apologetics, there really is a temptation, especially online to, to own the atheist, to own the skeptic. Um, that doesn't really win any converts. Um, it actually does the opposite. It just makes yeah. people kind of resent you. Um, so when I interact, especially with skeptics, and again, I don't always win this internal battle, um, but I, I try to be as gracious as possible, agree until I have to disagree. That, that's one of my rules in apologetics. I'm going to, as a skeptic, I'm going to agree with you for as long as I can until I have to disagree with you. Hmm. Um, that's good. And so that, that kind of sets up the type of environment that's more um, welcoming to discussion and dialogue instead of just trying to own each other. Yeah. Um, but again, it's a battle I don't always win, but it's it's definitely a battle that I try to fight pretty regularly. I like how you said that. I think that's really the first step in contextualizing the gospel is saying, where can we meet? Where can I agree yeah. with you until I can yeah. present to you the truth of the gospel? So, yeah, ben, yeah, well, let's just, let's dive into what um, Paul talks about in Athens and let's look at kind of how he uses um, apologetics there and, and what we can kind of glean for how we might use it uh, today. Um, yeah. uh, Chad, you want to kind of kick us off on that? Hold on, I'm uh, pulling it up here. Oh, you're good. Here. You want me to read it um, up? I can read the whole thing right I now. I can hold this up if that helps. <laughs> so, uh, you know what's interesting? You, if you go to Athens today, they've got this whole speech that Paul gives um, in a bronze plaque in the original Greek. Really, at the at the bottom of the Areopagus um, or Mars Hill is what it's sometimes called. So when you climb up to the, it's basically a boulder. It's a big rock that overlooks Athens, and when you climb up there um, and kind of wade through all the young couples that are sitting up there making out, which is what <laughs> happens today. Um, but there's there's this bronze plaque where uh, Paul's uh, speech to the gathered Areopagus is uh, commemorated. And, uh, and so what he does, starting in Acts 17, verse 16, it says while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Um, and then it says he reasoned in the synagogue, like you said, Ben, starting with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks. And then he went to the marketplace, the Agora, the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. Paul, you get the sense with Paul. Here, here's two things you notice right away. The first thing that you notice is Paul's speech was informed by um, cultural observation. Hmm. So he was not ignorant about the culture. He was aware of the culture. Now, he also didn't fully embrace the culture. That's a mistake that a lot of us make. Hmm. You know, we think that in order to be informed about the culture, we have to embrace it. That's not what Paul does. He, he understands and, and, and studies the culture. But the other thing that you notice is Paul just is passionately chatty. 
Um, he, he just is always looking for an opportunity. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. If he's in the synagogue, guess what? He's going to be talking about Jesus. If he's in the marketplace where, you know, in Athens, don't necessarily think about the marketplace as like a shopping mall. The marketplace was where public life happened. People would gather together. They would talk. They would have conversations. But similar in some ways to a coffee shop. If you imagine a coffee shop as being a public event um, where everybody's kind of chatting with everybody else. Um, and so if Paul's in the marketplace, he's going to be talking about Jesus. So he was observing culture. He was also very chatty, always looking for that opportunity. And then I, I'm not going to read the whole speech, but as you dive into Acts 17, what you notice is Paul starts with recognizing their religious impulse, but also pointing out to them that something was missing. They were mm -hmm. ignorant. Now, to an Athenian, ignorance was the enemy. The Athenians took a great deal of pride in their knowledge, their wisdom. And so when Paul says, you're actually ignorant, agnosis is what is the Greek word there. Hmm. Um, he knows he's going to get a rise out of his audience when he brings that up. So he captures their attention by, um, by pointing out a gap in their knowledge. Mm -hmm. And then he, he goes on to talk about um, uh, uh, talk about this idea that there is one God who has, you know, in whom we live and move and have our being. And this is something that the Athenians, even the, the Greek philosophers were, were keen to this idea that even though we have all these gods, there still is one God that kind of holds it all together. And so Paul is appealing to that. And he actually quotes, and this is this is amazing. He quotes from their own pop culture. Yeah. Um, in some respects, this would be like a preacher today. I don't I don't want to turn this, make this flippant, but in some respects, this would be like a preacher today, quoting from Harry Potter, or or making a reference to. Well, pop culture is so hard because there's not any unified pop culture, but, right. um, but but talking about. Um, uh, a prominent musician, Taylor Swift, you know, you name it. I mean, Paul had studied Greek pop culture enough that he actually uses it in making his appeal. So to the Jews, he's quoting Hebrew scripture. To the Athenians, he's quoting Greek poetry and wisdom, um, all with the same intent, though, to, to bring them to a knowledge of who God actually is in Jesus Christ. That's funny. Last uh, I think last week I uh, used Harry Potter as an illustration in youth group. Um, Look at you. And uh, but but yeah, what what I'm struck by is um, I think I think the the core of what Paul's getting at in Athens is hey, you guys worship. You guys worship a lot. You guys we would describe it today as syncretism. Um, yeah. And he and he kind of deals with some of that in uh, Colossians as well. Um, but um, this idea that like yeah, you can you can worship your god. Look, you can worship your god. Everybody can worship their gods, and that's okay because there are so many gods, and everybody can worship with. And that is, I think, um, our culture is pretty comfortable with that. I think mm -hmm. um, you don't you don't get to have a, a corner on the truth, but everybody gets their own truth, and you can worship who you want as long as you don't make any demands of me. And um, and so Paul goes and he addresses that. He's like, you know, you have all these gods. Let me tell you about this unknown God that you have. And then he goes and he, even though confirms, even though he previously confirms you have all these gods, he says, um, 
he points out that their gods are, yeah, he says, therefore, since we are God's offering, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. So while he confirms that they do worship gods, um, and he's like, let me tell you about this unknown God, he goes back and says, and yeah, those gods that you worship are a bunch of junk. And, uh, and, and I think that that's, uh, it may be helpful in the discourse that we have in our world today where, man, we, we got a lot of gods. Chad, you talked about politics, um, whether it's money, sports. Sports let us down all the time. All these gods well, let... You are a let fan. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, <laughs> we can't even tank, right? Um, you know, all of these gods let us down. Like, they all fail. They're all made by human hands or made by human minds, and, and yet... Paul would say, and I think we should say, um, our God doesn't, and our God has not failed, will not fail, and is and His truth is true. Now, I, I will say though, the most politically incorrect section of Paul's speech starts in verse twenty-nine, where he says, "Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think about that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone." You made reference to that, <laughs> an image made by human design and skill in the past. God look, overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands yeah. all people everywhere to repent. For he has said a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And here's the point that I always like to make with Acts 17. People, some people love Acts 17 because in Acts 17, here you have an example of Paul. He's being relevant, right? Mm. He's being relevant to the culture. He's speaking their language. And like in our minds, we think, yeah, that's what I want. I want to be relevant to my culture. Yeah. I want to, you know, I'm not making fun of you, but I want to quote Harry Potter and do all the, you know, I, hey, want, man. I, want, to, I want people to, to recognize how we, you know, we could build bridges between the culture and, and, and who God is. Yeah. Okay. Yes. But you also recognize that Paul wasn't much interested in that. Paul wasn't interested in being cool. He wasn't interested in being relevant. He wasn't even interested in being regarded as smart or wise or whatever. There's hope for me. There's hope for me. Yeah. (laughs) Like Paul, Paul had the audacity to call his audience to repentance. Mm -hmm. That was audacious. And so whenever anybody talks to me about Acts 17 in this sort of glowing way, I always like to remind them, I'm like, hey, but you remember, like Paul wasn't up there trying to be relevant. Paul was up there trying to call people to repentance. And I got to tell you, people didn't like that in Acts 17, and they're not going to like it today either. Um, yeah. But, you know, the unfortunate reality is, or the, it's not unfortunate, the uncomfortable reality is that God hasn't really called his people to be comfortable. Um, he's, he's called his people to be ambassadors of the truth. And, and we see that on pretty clear display in Acts 17. I also think that... The, the truth behind Acts 17 rings true for people who, who well, when their gods do fail them, especially when they hit rock bottom, especially in regards to like addiction and things like that, where, where the thing that they've been worshiping fails them, whether it's their job, whether it's their, like I said, addiction, um, family, whatever, and they, and they hit rock bottom and they hit um, an, emo- an emotional and a um, you know, physical and maybe financial low, and they realize, okay, so these things I've been putting everything in, my time, my energy, my worship has failed me. Um, it's, it's those times, I think we've all experienced this in ministry, where it's those times that people are most receptive to the gospel. Yeah. And, um, and I, think, I, I think that can be um, helpful, and I think that that's important to, to, I guess, understand about people. That's really good. One of the things you're talking that uh, <clears throat> I was thinking through um, as 
you kind of brought this up a little bit, Chad, or, or, or went off from, from that, but is, uh, you know, when he's uh, in Athens here, he's speaking to their values, really. Yeah. Um, and that is, uh, that's really uh, where Paul starts at in each place is kind of a, not in an overbearing, it doesn't begin with this overbearing, here's the truth, um, here's what it is, but he begins by building these bridges and these connections by speaking to what people value, um, and yet, no matter what their values are, um, the gospel is still universal to all people. Um, so wherever your starting point is, um, you know, the gospel message is still the same. So contextualizing the gospel um, is, you know, beginning with where people are at, but then bringing them this universal message of truth of the gospel, um, yeah. which calls all people to repent, which calls all people to come to the knowledge of uh, Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. So anyway, I, I, we see that in, uh, in Athens. We see that uh, all over the place. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's pretty good stuff. So as we're kind of wrapping up this conversation, I think it, it might be important to discuss, why do you think it's important that we have uh, a sort of de defense internally and a defense uh, ready for external, like uh, a defense ready for the gospel when it comes to apologetics, rather than like, why can't we just go out in the street, open our Bible, start reading it, and start preaching? Why do we need to be able to have a discussion and, and even debate and, uh, and, and, and defend the gospel? I would, um, <clears throat> for me, just looking at our at our culture that we're in, you know, we're in an increasingly, um, we've always been polarized based on our, you know, values, and whatever, but we're in an increasingly polarized um, uh, society uh, that, again, is becoming more and more suspicious of, you know, power and authority structures and things like that. And so, uh, you know, we referred back to this kind of earlier in the conversation that I think a lot of people, you know, they're looking for authenticity and they're looking for, um, uh, what actually resonates with me. They're not wanting a person to just come in and, you know, here, this is it, you know, turn or burn, repent, that's how it is, and, and go, you know, we live in such a polarized society. And and again, you know, I don't know if we're fully postmodern or we're kind of, you know, somewhere in between, but for the most part, yeah, people don't, uh, people don't respond super well to just come in and thus saith the Lord, here's where it is. Um, but people want to know that this is um, relevant, that this is uh, personal, and so... Um, so I think it's important for us to be able to actually learn how to meet people where they're at, um, to ask those questions. Where are you coming from? And let me show you how the gospel is true for you as well. And I think in order to do that, um, you know, we have to be able to have these uh, actual individual discussions and, uh, and debates with people. Yeah, I've met two kind of people, two kinds of people um, who I think apologetics are um, really important for, and I think they're important for all people. But the first would I would say um, is is the type of person that presuppositional apologetics are important for. Mm -hmm. It's the type of person who like they're they're like I reject the Bible, I reject that truth, I re and and so they need to have uh, questions sent their way of well, wh where do you get your truth and where do you get your presuppositions from, um, and and and. Uh, you know, often th those conversations take a lot of time. It takes a, a, a building of relationships and things like that. Um, but um, that's that's one type of person. Um, but then the other type of person, I had a conversation actually with uh, a member of this church um, about a year ago, and, and they asked, hey, when are we going to have a sermon series on apologetics? And it kind of took me back, and, and I realized, like, you know, probably not for a while because we kind of have some plans in the works and things like that. But I asked, you know, you know why, why are you interested in that? Um, and because this is a, an older Christian, someone who's been in the faith for a while, and they said, "Man, I, years ago I was really a, what I would describe as a doubting Thomas. You know, I had all of these issues with uh, creation and all of these issues with, uh, you know, the resurrection and all these issues with all sorts of stuff, and I just needed help to understand it and and, and come to 
um, f- you know, figure this stuff out. Mm-hmm. And, and I uh, encountered apologetics and encountered these video series and these books and these things like that. And man, it was so helpful for my faith. And I was more secure in, in what I believe. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's like the other type of person that, you know, the, ap- evidential apologetics, like uh, that, that, you know, they really need to be, um, you know, have their faith confirmed and helped. So Chad, do you yeah. want to help yeah. us help finish out this conversation? Yeah, I mean, uh, I would just affirm what, what you both have said. Um, there are a lot of different ways to practice apologetics. I, I always tell my students apologetics is always contextual because it's based not on what I want to say. It's based on what someone else may be struggling with. And so I've got to be humble enough to respond to their particular issue or their particular question or need or whatever. And apologetics, uh, then what you've said, too, is apologetics is oftentimes um, – uh, an essential ingredient in, in our own discipleship. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I don't know that I've met too many Christians who are growing in their faith, who are maturing in their faith, who haven't at some point or another um, sought out some apologetic wisdom. Um, it just kind of comes with the territory, and people shouldn't be freaked out by that or scared by that. It is one of the more natural things in the world. As you're growing in your faith, you're also going to encounter challenges and questions and wonderments and whatever. And and uh, apologetics can be a great help in our discipleship. So it helps us in our discipleship, but also helps us to be able to answer um, the questions or the concerns that skeptics might have. Um, and just on that last point, too, you're going to be ill-equipped to honestly answer the questions that skeptics ask if you don't take your own faith seriously enough to ask some of those questions as well. Um we, we can't be allergic to questions. We can't be fearful of questions. If, if God is a God of truth, then as we are seeking truth, we also are seeking God. And, um, and so, um, uh, so, yeah, apologetics, I think, is important for evangelism. It's also important for discipleship. Um, to go back to the, to the previous point, too, why can't I just stand up there and just, you know, level people with the truth? Just, you know, <laughs> and people try that, right? Pe- people mm-hmm. still do try that approach. Um, I, for some reason, I thought about this scene at the very end of Avengers Endgame um, where, uh, you know, they're getting ready to, um, Hulk is getting ready to put on the, the gauntlet and snap his fingers. And before so he pop does culture. That, yeah, before he does that, Tony Stark, and I don't even remember what he calls it, but Tony Stark says something where the entire building that they're in goes into lockdown. The, the, the windows are closed, the doors are barred shut, everything goes into lockdown as they prepare for this traumatic moment. And, and I got to believe that the average non-Christian person, the minute that they see some preacher somewhere yelling at them, some Bible verse or whatever, they immediately go into lockdown. They're, they are immediately tuning you out. You are not going to make any sort of progress with them whatsoever. Um, if you really want to, if you really want to reach that person, rather than just having your own sense of self-righteousness. Oh, look what I did today. I stood on a street corner and quoted scripture versus mm-hmm. that, you know, people as they pass by. If you really want to have an impact, you've got to engage in conversations. And conversations require addressing the specific concerns, issues, and questions that a skeptic might have. And that is the relevance of apologetics. That's good. And that's a, that's a big reason why we kind of started this podcast is, um, you know, people respond uh, to truth in different ways and the way that we preach is... 
uh, far different than uh, sitting down and having a discussion. So, so Chad, we want to thank you for uh, joining us today and Absolutely. joining us for the uh, Furthermore podcast. And this has been another Furthermore podcast. We want to remind you that it's now on basically all your favorite podcasting platforms, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or uh, Anchor, or or what have you. And um, those should uh, those links will be in the description. Um, probably should have put that at the beginning of the podcast but oh well so church we uh we we thank you for listening in and we love you and we will see you uh this sunday